Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, human recommendation algorithm, Andy Bowman, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Tessa Suela. Hello! And Dr. Sam Morris. Hello! This week, Sam boldly goes where he's almost never gone before. Tessa moves to a small town in Tennessee. Oh, God. And I go out for revenge. Space revenge! With a sandwich. Sam, you finally did it. How does it feel? You know, I know a lot of people have been doing this for a long time. And, you know, I never felt like I wasn't ready. For a while, I wasn't really interested. I had mixed feelings, and I just knew that if it was ever going to happen, it was going to happen. It was going to have to happen with the right person. And, you know, with Tessa, I know that I've finally found the right person. And we're, we're talking about Star Trek, correct? Sure. Tessa is a huge Star Trek fan. I know you know this, Andy. If there only if there only was a word for Star Trek fans, but we don't have one, right? There's there's no no such thing. As part of a larger deal, as part of a larger development deal, I watched the first season of Star Trek, the original series. And to be very very clear, we are talking about the original series that ran for three seasons from 1966 to 1969. It aired on NBC. However, it's owned by CBS and Paramount. That's a thing that used to happen back in the day. It's created by Gene Roddenberry, who is like, I mean, if you know Star Trek, you know all this stuff. Um, I think it's really great that the original series is associated with Desilu Productions, which is Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. I thought this was really interesting. Wikipedia tells me that Gene Roddenberry was influenced by Horatio Hornblower, Gulliver's Travels, Forbidden Planet, Wagon Train, this is like, this is very close to like George Lucas word salad, but a very different kind. Horatio Hornblower. Yeah. We're, we're talking about this whole United Federation of Planets, and they have their star fleet. The USS Enterprise is one of those spaceships, and it's commanded by James T. Kirk, played by the inimitable William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy as Spock, DeForest Kelly, as Leonard McCoy, James Dewan as Scotty, Nichelle Nichols as Uhura, and George Takei, who Sulu, Sulu has a first name. It's Hikaru Sulu. We watched the first season, most of the episodes. Uh, like with the X-Files, we, we did not watch some of the quote-unquote weaker episodes. All right. Now, Sam, after doing all this and listing off the entire cast, what did you think about it? I did not, in fact, list the entire cast list most of the cast (laughs) well we'll get to some more casting stuff here in a minute what did you think about it before i tell you what i think about it let me tell you what audiences in the 60s thought about it when the first season ended it was ranked number 52 out of 94 shows and so nbc did not want to renew it but they ultimately did but they put it in the death slot if you know what the death slot is um it's no go ahead I, I don't I don't know you, what you the death slot is. One? Tell me what the death slot is. Is that an execution slot? Were they going to summarily execute it? Was Star Trek going to the gallows? <laughs> it's called Friday Night. Friday Night Lights, yes. Yeah, because people don't watch TV on Friday nights. 
back in my day. Anyway, um, Star Trek was not back in my day, to be clear. This is really interesting because the, the original series limps along for three seasons before it gets canceled, but then the interest revives in syndication, which is how you get not only the revival of the major motion pictures, but also subsequent series being shown on syndication all the way up to the most current series, which have moved to streaming. I've been hesitant to watch Star Trek for a long time because... It's boring. Yeah, well, boring. I yeah, I probably would have said that in my my younger years, but and and this is such a bad take considering something that's happened over the last couple of years that I know you feel strongly about. But I'm a Star Wars fan. I grew up with Star Wars, and I'm not saying you can't like both. I mean, Tessa exists, but no, it's one or the other, right? And and in as much as you have to pick one or the other, I was always going to pick Star Wars. Now, this is not the first Star Trek I've ever seen. The first Star Trek I ever saw was Star Trek Four, the one with the whales. God. Because I was a child of the 80s, and they would run those like matinee series for kids at the movie theater over the summer, and so that was one of the movies I saw. I also took a, a course in utopian theory in grad school where the professor, same professor Tessa mentioned a few weeks ago, showed Star Trek. So I've seen a few episodes of each of the series, but never on purpose, never meaningfully. I've also seen the first two motion pictures. Uh, I saw the first season of Picard, a couple of other things. But but Tessa's case always was, you know, this is utopian. It's utopian. You would like this. And yeah, the, the first season of Star Trek takes on a lot of issues, and Star Trek as a whole takes on a lot of issues. It's not a serialized show. You don't have to watch it week to week. You can dip in, dip out. It's pretty cool. I mean, there's a lot to recommend the show. Some episodes are better than others. Some episodes are better than others. Okay, well, I want to know more about that. But first, I want to tell you that Star Trek is boring and all episodes are equally boring. But what are the standout episodes from your point of view of the first season? Before we talk about the standout episodes, I want to watch Tessa explode from not talking. I just want to say that one of the really interesting things about the first season is there are dueling pilots. There are two pilot episodes, which is fascinating. There is a pilot episode called The Cage that does not feature the Shatner. There is the actual aired second pilot episode called Where No Man Has Gone Before. But hold on. The Cage is repurposed as part of a two-parter later in the first season called The Menagerie, where they use the footage from the pilot as evidence in a trial. And, and it's, it is brilliant and stupid at the same time. And I think there is no better way to describe Star Trek, a series that takes on ethical conundrums, imperialism, class structure, economy, human rights, feminism, technology, the war. And by the war, I mean the Vietnam War and so many other things. But it's also so stupid at the same time. Now, Tessa, I have a game for you. Oh, God. I have, <laughs> I have prepared the six standout episodes of the first season. How many of them can you guess? We watched almost all of the first season. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Count them up. Six episodes. Go. Well, definitely the menagerie, because I know you really liked the way that they repurposed the footage. So that's number one. These are not in any particular order. These are just as I think of them. Wait, now does does the menagerie count as one or two? Because yes. okay, we will we will say for the purposes of this. Conversation, okay, for the purposes of this conversation, menagerie parts one and two. Let's see. Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make a guess at one, just one. What's your guess, Andy? The city on the edge of forever. Yeah, that is a pretty classic one. And Sam does really appreciate time travel. So I think that is a fairly good guess. We'll put that one in slot number two. City on the Edge of Forever, Devil in the Dark, I think. Oh, probably Arena. No, I don't think that one was on Sam's list. I don't think Sam appreciated Arena as much as the average Trek fan. But Return of the Archons. No, not Return of the... Errand of Mercy. I believe Sam really liked Errand of Mercy. So that's four. Right? Menagerie, City on the Edge of Forever, Errand of Mercy, Devil in the Dark. So I need two more. The Galileo 7, The Naked Time. This is interesting because uh, I am sure that there's one person, one listener who's screaming at their Zoom right now. Okay, wait, hold on. So No, I'm I'm just saying, some person's already screamed out six episodes that are their favorite, that are the canonically favorite six episodes. Now, Sam, tell me if I was right. You were not. And that's it. Next question. I believe these are actually in aired order, but they're not in any particular order. Mud's Women, which is the introduction of the, I'll call him, space pirate, Harcourt Fenton Mud, ne'er-do-well peddling the Venus drug. The next, we have The Conscience of the King, which is the introduction of Kodos the Executioner. A Simpsons reference I didn't know. That's neat. What if an interplanetary, interdimensional warlord was posing as an actor? By the way, this is the last episode of the original series that features Grace Lee Whitney. Did you know that? I did not know that. I know things Tessa does it about Star Trek. I did not watch these in order when I was a child. We have the Galileo 7. You were correct about that. It is what if Star Trek did the trolley problem. So that's cool. We have the alternative factor, a parallel universe, people. What if all of the matter that we cannot quantify or qualify, we used to try to say it was dark matter. It's resurfaced in the news. What if all of that was actually a minus universe to our positive universe? It's it's neat. And then, of course, the other two episodes are Tomorrow is Yesterday and The City on the Edge of Forever. They are both time travel conundrum episodes. They are single timeline time travel, like your Back to the Future or Terminator uh, setup. They are not quantum. The alternative factor is more quantum in some ways, but not really. But these episodes both have that ethical idea of what do you do if you have the opportunity to change the past. And as any time travel aficionado will tell you, you cannot do it. You cannot do it for one of two reasons. One, you are ethically bound to not do it. Or two, if you do do it, the universe will cease to exist and we know it hasn't happened because we're still here. So either way, it kind of depends on how you feel. Those are my six favorite episodes 
Some of them are more gimmicky than others. But like I said, most of them deal with those kind of ethical issues. They deal with it in very silly ways. But, you know, they deal with it better than Star Wars. Do they? So just tell me this. Overall, do you think that people should take the leap? I do. The non-quantum leap. Thanks for ruining the franchise, Bacula. So yeah, as I said before, my initial reluctance was Star Wars related in many ways. Of course, now that now that that's not a good reason to turn your nose up at literally anything. Well, I mean, like I said, it felt like it was time. And I, I am more interested in watching. I don't think that I have it in me to watch, to be a completionist, to watch 30 more seasons of television. Tessa tells me that the amount of episodes we will watch in her guided run through of the series for seasons two and three is, or yeah, for seasons two and three is about equal to what we did for season one. So that'll be fine. We've watched Picard. I'm already on board with those characters. So we'll, we'll do next generation. We'll work our way through over time. I'm excited to watch Discovery. Uh, I'm excited to watch Below Decks. I, you know, I'm glad to be on board with this. And I think that more people should do that. Uh, It is very different from Star Wars. I still like the swashbuckly action adventure when done right. But there's enough room in the galaxy for both of these. Before we move on, Tessa, what have I missed? I mean... Kirk and Spock clearly love each other, but otherwise, you did a pretty good job. It is worth watching just so, I I will say it was very fun watching this in chronological order because I never have watched them in the order in which they aired before. So that was really interesting. I also really enjoyed Sam's added sound effect of every time Shatner would fight someone, he would just yell, karate chop. And that that was really fun. And also over the last year, and Tessa talked about this on Twitter the other day, We've been watching Batman 66 as well, and we discovered not only do they share a chronological overlap, they share some other overlaps, too, in terms of style, acting, lots of other stuff. Yeah, they were in direct competition with each other. They aired around the same time, and there are definitely some actor crossover. If you're a fan of Batman 66, you'll recognize uh, actors like Frank Gorshin, who plays the Riddler in... In Batman, he plays a a character in a very famous episode of Trek that we have not gotten to yet. Uh, Yvonne Craig, Batgirl, is also in a very famous episode of Trek, as well as several other actors as well. So, I mean, I, I definitely think this was an era of very silly television. Depending on how you feel about Star Trek, it either gets less silly or more silly as the case goes on as you get to subsequent shows. But I think it is worth watching just because... There's so much impact of these shows from the the 60s on the future of sci-fi and the future of television. Cool, cool. Okay, let's get to this week's discussion question and not about boring Star Trek, which again, I might remind people, is boring. And our correction department or complaint department is at Portly Island Boy on Twitter. (laughs) All right, guys. uh, The discussion question this week is kind of based on a piece of media that I, as a young man, took the wrong lesson from, right? The, the, the lesson that wasn't the authorial intent. And I want to talk to people about media that you get the wrong lesson from, okay? Uh, 
this is uh, kind of like your uh, people who watch Breaking Bad and think that it is uh, a show about how cool and awesome Walter White is. I'm going to let Sam go first because Sam has definite opinions about oh, this I issue. Just, I just talk. No, you do. What do you call them? No, no, no. I want to get to that, but I want, I want Andy to talk okay. about this thing first. I, I, do, I do have a, a little, little game here. Oh, okay. A, a, a little, little game to see if people can guess what my terrible teenage takeaways were. And I, 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 I want to be very, 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 very clear here. I, these were genuine lessons that I internalized on some point while reading classical novels that I realized were not the right takeaways uh, later. And the game is I'm going to say the novel... And the lesson from it. See, I thought you were gonna tell us the lesson and see if we could oh, guess the. You, you, you know what? You know what? Fine, fine. We, we will, yeah, we will, let's do that. we will do that. Okay. I, what are we gonna call it? I will. Is it Andy's takeaways? Uh, I call wanna, it. Do you want to? No, no, no. It's Andy's misconceived preconception. See, see, but the these aren't misconceived. These are wrong takeaways after having read the book. Okay. Okay. The these are terrible teenage takeaways. On this episode of Andy's Terrible Takeaways, the game. Getting away from everything won't solve any problems, but doing so and realizing how much better you are than everyone else might be a good start. A Brave New World? Yeah. I've got this one. Okay. It is the classic poem, Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through, by Meatloaf, from the Bad Out of Hell 2 album. Quote, you can't run away forever, but there's nothing wrong with getting a good head start. What kind of high school did you go to? <laughs> uh, the, the Rocky Horror Picture High School. Um, this was a true story. I saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show for the first time at my high school. This was Catcher in the Rye. Okay. All right. I, I could see how... You could come away from that with that thought if you weren't given a lot of guidance. Don't fight against totalitarian governments. You won't win. Animal farm? No. I mean, this is this one's too easy. It is the Beastie Boys. You've got to fight for your right to party. Sam is correct. It is the classical George Orwell written Beastie Boys. It's uh, 1984, of course, of course. All right, now I'm starting to think that Sam hates musicals because he, in fact, grew up in a high school musical. Being prideful is hella attractive. Pride and prejudice, baby. See, I know what you're thinking. You think I'm going to say pride in the name of love by you too, but I'm not. The answer is Proud Mary, but I'm trying to figure out if it's the Creedence Clearwater Revival version or the Ike and Tina Turner version. Don't just pretend to be a sad sack. Really commit to it. Then women and people will find you interesting. Women and people? <laughs> a woman without a child. It's just, just a, a person. person. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Okay, okay. So, so I was, I was going to say how uh, <laughs> women will find you attractive and people will find you interesting, but... Ah, oh, I like that. The first thing that popped in my head is definitely not something you would have read in high school. Let me think. So remember, this is don't just pretend to be a sad sack. Really commit to it. 
then women will find you attractive and people will find you interesting. I don't know. I didn't have a usual high school upbringing. This this is this is G- one Jude the obscure. Okay, okay, I don't know. Okay, okay. You, you know what? You your English majors, this would have been required reading for you at some point in your life. Jude the obscure is actually a pretty good guess. But here's the thing. In my heart of hearts, I know what the answer is. I've second guessed myself. I'm thinking, well, maybe it's popular by not a surf. But I'm going to have to go with my gut. It's every ska song ever. It's a tale of two cities. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, nobody reads that anymore. I feel like instead of reading those books, you should read the books that I have suggested because they would have fit into your misconceived preconceptions from the beginning. Okay, we've got, we've got four more. Genuine takeaways that I uh, internalized as a teenager. Bring it on! You can be justified for pursuing revenge as long as you're cool enough to pay it back. I would say Moby Dick, but Captain Ahab isn't cool. This one, of course, is from the bard, Taylor Swift. <laughs> Better than revenge. This was the Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, okay. That one makes way more sense than Moby Dick because the Count is hella cool. You can make anyone do whatever you want if you are smarter and funnier than they are. And you're not a sociopath for doing it. You're awesome. The Great Gatsby. No. I've got this one. It's Tom Sawyer by Rush. It's The Prince by Machiavelli. I really was hoping it was actually Tom Sawyer. Do, do people actually read The Prince in high school still? I mean, I did. Well, I mean, at the school where I saw a Rocky Horror Picture Show for the first time, we did. We also read the Communist Manifesto. What? Man, you were really educated to be a liberal, weren't you? Tessa's going to get this one. I'm fairly certain. There's always an obvious solution. Just present it with a straight face and then say it's a joke. Unless... I feel like if I'm wrong, you're going to judge me for saying this, but a modest proposal. That's a, that's a good guess, Tessa. But... I believe that he is talking about a, a poem that begins, hey, if we can solve any problem, which is the song Every Time You Go Away, originally by Holland Oates, but popularized by Paul Young. Tessa, you're corrected. It, it was a modest proposal. <laughs> I feel like there's, I've only gotten two so far. Yeah, you've only gotten two, and uh, this... The answer to this one is going to be really funny, but I don't see what everyone's so uh, so uh, shocked about. This place sounds pretty cool to me. Dante's Inferno? No. <laughs> oh, so you are referring to the Eagles reunion show turned into album Hell Freezes Over. I, I am referring to Tessa's first guest, Brave New World. See, it all comes back to Brave New World. I should have just guessed that one for every single one. Yeah, you would have gotten at least one right. Yeah. <laughs> so you would have done worse than you actually did. Yay, I got two out of uh, however many. I'm doing terrible at guessing today. Yeah. Uh, as you can tell, uh, I was a, um, a normal teenage boy and took some bad takeaways from classical literature because, hey, you know, when you're reading like the Count of Monte Cristo or Prince, that just sounds awesome. I don't think you actually understand like how sa- satire works. I mean, I, I do now. Oh, yeah. I meant, like, when you were a teenager, I don't think you understood. Yeah. No, no, no. I, 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 mean, I mean, I understood that Modest Proposal was a joke, but I always, I always also thought, like, 
that Swift was actually saying like, yeah, ha ha ha, isn't this funny, right? I was just joking too. Unless. <laughs> anyway, congratulations on uh, doing better than Sam uh, while somehow not playing the same game. <laughs> uh, and congratulations to Sam for keeping it up. But yeah, so I, I, I just wanted to talk about media that people take the wrong lessons from. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. <clears throat> As you might have caught on to by now, I spent my youth listening to pop music. And, and as you know, I have been waiting to write this for a long time, and I will one day. But it's called Lies Pop Culture Taught Me. And it is almost singularly about pop music, which is the biggest, I mean, like, Pop music should be regulated as a class one drug for the destructive power it has on youth. I am here to tell you that stuff shouldn't be listened to without a license. You need to take coursework to understand because if you take it too seriously, you can learn things like love is the greatest thing ever. If she doesn't love you, just keep asking. Stalking? is cool. If she doesn't like you now, later she will, after X amount of losers who will all treat her badly. And if you ever end up with her, but you lose her, it's your fault, and you have to make up for it, unless it's her fault, and one day, she will realize, and she'll come back to you. But don't just leave it to chance. You've got to work. you got to get down on bended knee. you got to ask. And always, 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 no matter how creepy it sounds, you say, I will always love you. You know, it's not just pop music. I mean, but, you know, you can listen to the Beatles and have your mind completely warped about expectations, about relationships and and what love is and you know this is not an apology for any white dude who has ever lived please do not take that from this however it, you know i know that growing up i had several several really bad ideas of what all of this stuff meant because of pop music nick hornby really caught on to it in high fidelity talking about that he's you know we've heard a lot of talk about it now but for all of Tipper Gore's talk about parent advisory stickers and How I Met Your Mother has a really great term for it because it's not just music. It's also film and TV and stuff. John Cusack has basically made his career off of that hangdog dude who nobody understands who might be able to get the girl. He plays the character from High Fidelity in the movie, but before that, you know, he played the dude that if he just learned to ski and outdo the the guy at the ski lodge, everything would be great. Better off dead. He, he, right. And he also played Lloyd Dobler from Better Off Dead, the dude with the boombox. And so How I Met Your Mother calls it the Dobler-Dahmer effect, which is all of these romantic gestures that you learn from listening to pop music and other things of pop culture, depending on how they are received, come across as romantic, like Lloyd Dobler, or not, like Jeffrey Dahmer. Better Off Dead is not the movie with the boombox. That one is Say Anything. There's a lot of not good stuff 
John Hughes movies are the same thing, but let's not talk about uh, some bad representation in those movies outside of what we're talking about right now. Tessa, do you have anything to say about mistakes? Ha ha. I just came. <laughs> oh, wait, that's a that's a already a word. Never mind. Actual word. I mean, I think that there's a lot of and this is a little different from what you were saying as far as like. Count of Monte Cristo isn't necessarily trying to tell you that revenge is good. It's just. It seems cool because the Count is really cool, but what we're talking about is more like things that are represented in pop culture that you could, if you thought that relationships were like that, you could actually take away the wrong lesson. And I think movies and soaps, especially like, I'm thinking of actually John Hughes films, uh, Reality Bites, which we watched last year. Uh, One Tree Hill, like all of these things that I, I really, I mean, I didn't watch Reality Bites until more recently, but at 10 Things I Hate About You is the same way. It's a great film. I love that film. But if you are a teenager watching that film, what you are going to think is, oh, I actually don't need any emotional boundaries with the boys in my life. And the person who I should be with is the one that treats me bad, but says he's sorry at the end. And I think that that's a lesson that we teach girls a lot from a young age. And we teach boys that a lot, too. And I know that I have really struggled in my adult life to find appropriate boundaries with people I've been in romantic relationships with and to know, you know, when they're treating me badly or when, you know, it's okay to walk away. And I think that not only do we teach girls that that's exciting and cool and that that's just the way that love is, but we also teach boys that that's the way that girls want to be pursued. And I've actually heard a lot of boys use that against girls before and say, you know, oh, well, they only like, you know, the bad kids and like girls should just, you know, like me, like, because I'm a good person and, you know, like the whole friend zone argument. And to me, and which, by the way, is another lie that pop culture has told us, the friend zone. So, yeah, I think that there are a lot of really dangerous ideas out there about boundaries and relationships and how people should treat each other. And that's definitely something I've had to unlearn a lot in my 20s. In conclusion, Lara Jean, focus on yourself. I don't care if he looks like Noah Centineo, because that's who plays him in the movie. I don't care. Focus on yourself. Speaking of focusing on yourself, Tessa. (laughs) <laughs> I, don't, I don't really understand that tr- transition, Hold on, but I, I got want to see where it goes. What did you focus on this week? <laughs> I read the 2016 YA novel, If I Was Your Girl by Meredith Russo. This book, of course, is not meant to be confused with If I Was Your Girlfriend by Prince. Not Machiavelli, author of The Prince, but Minnesota's own Prince. Okay, so other than to annoy Andy, whose favorite thing is when we talk about books on the podcast, because it's a judgment-free podcast after all, why was this book on your list? Just wait until one of us reads a book about anime. Challenge accepted. So this book has been on my list for a while. You taught this book in your young adult class two years ago? Is that correct? Yeah, two years ago. So it's been on my list since then. And with all of the anti-trans legislation that seems to be sweeping through the nation recently, I decided it was a really good time to celebrate books about 
trans kids, trans youth, and that are written by trans authors. Uh, Meredith Russo is a trans woman. So I wanted to promote that here on this platform. Tell everybody what the book's about. Teenage girl Amanda Hardy, who moves from Atlanta to Tennessee to get a fresh start. She is, for most of the book, determined just to get through school, to survive school, to graduate, and to move out of the South because she has been discriminated against quite a bit in the South because she is a trans woman. But because of all of this transphobic bullying and violence in her past, she decides that when she moves to this little town, Lambertsville, that she is going to remain stealth, which means that she is going to try as much as possible to pass as a cis woman. However, when she meets the handsome and smart Grant, who is very, like, stereotypical YA, Noah Centineo style love interest, and a bevy of girls who think that she is pretty cool and they want to be friends with her, she can't resist trying to live her life and not just survive it. So a lot of this book is actually sort of her remaining self and trying to figure out if she needs to tell people or if she should tell people or if she even owes people any kind of explanation for her existence. This book also does a really good job of jumping back and forth from like the present day where she's dealing with all of these problems and three years in the past where it talks about her transitioning and sort of the impetus for her transition. Uh, I feel like if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that Tessa and I often conflate actors with the characters that they play. And I'm, I'm sure that Noah Centineo is a, just a wonderful person and and we shouldn't be holding him up as, you know, girl, you can do better. But, you know, anyway. Be careful about insulting the Internet's boyfriend. We're going to get angry letters from the Internet. At this point, I'm like 75% sure that when we mention somebody on this podcast, something bad happens to them. Like, we're, we're not monkey off my backlog. We're monkey's paw off my backlog. I don't know. <laughs> it's actually just the same. Oh, okay. I know you have mixed feelings. Tell us about them. So let me start about what I really liked about this book. So this is what I would call, and correct me if I'm wrong, our YA, our resident YA expert here. This is definitely what I would call a YA problem book. Is that, does that seem like an accurate description? Well, I'm okay with being the YA expert because we can't all be human recommendation algorithms or people's the runner-up for people's sexiest man alive, which I think is made up. I don't, I don't think that's a real thing. I have won the runner-up for people's sexiest man alive, okay? Nobody. Which, which, nobody which can, uh, peoples? Don't, don't pick this apart for me, Sam. Sam, could you explain what a YA problem book is to our audience? Yes, there are a few common classifiers within young adult lit because it's not a genre. It's a book-selling, marketing category. But within that, we, we've come up with a few common categories. You know, you've got, your, you've got all your typical genre stuff, your sci-fi, your mystery, your fantasy, your supernatural stuff, and then you have your more quote-unquote realistic stuff, stuff that, that could happen today. And then within that... You can also talk about the fact that most of these realistic books are, are romances or they're more problem, social problem based. And it's not to say you can't have all those things happening at once, but 
while this has some rom-commy aspects that you've already mentioned, it's more of a book that is about a problem. Yes, and actually, I think that the problem part of this works pretty well. I mean, I think that this is very effective. You really care about Amanda as a character. I think she's a great character. I really like her friends, the girls that she becomes friends with. They are very diverse. One of them is like very religious, very like traditionally South uh, or Southern Baptist, I think. And so she has like a lot of like the religious qualities to that. But we get to see sort of into her life and how misogyny affects her specifically. We get to see, you know, these other characters, some of which are from like lower income. That all works really well to sort of present us with Amanda as a character who is very likable, who seems very realistic as a teenage character and who we can relate to. There's a lot of things about Amanda that seem very, very relatable. I think this book works also very well, especially in the current climate, to argue for why medical intervention for trans youth is incredibly important. This book talks a lot about sort of the stakes of not having access to medical care for trans youth, and it does a really great job of arguing how Amanda's life is better because she has access to that medical care. And I think that that If you are someone who is really struggling with trying to understand why these anti-trans bills about youth are so important, why, for example, puberty blockers are so important, HRTs, if you want to know more about that medical aspect of being trans, this is a really, really good book to sort of get you started on that. The other thing that I really, really liked is the fact that Amanda does a really great job. We see almost everything from her perspective. It is a first-person narrative. She does a really good job of talking about trans misogyny, the idea that as someone who previously at least passed as a boy and is now passing for the most part as a teenage girl, she's suddenly aware of the way in which the male gaze is almost constantly focused on women. The idea, you know, that women live essentially different social lives, they are scrutinized in different ways, they are subject to a different kind of prejudice, a different kind of bias, but also added to that is sort of this intersectional layer of she constantly feels fear that she's not going to pass, that someone is going to recognize her. In fact, someone does recognize her in a flashback and something very violent happens as the result of that. And, you know, so there's that intersection of misogyny and sort of that straight cis you know, gaze that that accompanies that. And I think this book does a great job of showing how both of those things exist in the same space in the same character. Um, It's not one or the other. It's both at the same time. And they intersect and they layer on each other in different ways. So from that perspective, I think this book is very successful. Mixed feelings, though. You like some stuff, but I know you didn't like some stuff. Go ahead. So I want to make it really clear that my problems with this novel, for the most part, have nothing to do with the author or really with the book itself. It mainly has to do with the way that this has been marketed, especially by publishing companies and to educators, I think, specifically. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Sam, about how Young Adult Lit is primarily like a publishing 
category. Like it's, it's kind of, things are classified as young adult lit in order to sell them to a certain readership and to a certain market. The way that this book has been categorized is Amanda just wants to be a normal teenage girl. And there is this problem that's holding her back from it. And while we do get that in the book, she does want to be a normal teenage girl. The idea that there is sort of this normal teenage girl to which you can aspire to is an incredibly white, classist, ableist concept, right? Like this idea that there's one teenage experience and it looks like this. And if we only allow trans youth to have access to that experience, then they would be fine, right? Um, This book is incredibly white. Um, There are, as far as I can remember, no characters of color in it, um, which kind of makes sense because they live in a small town in Tennessee. And I know that there are a lot of small towns in Tennessee that are incredibly white. So I understand that. Um, And I will also say Meredith Russo does a really good job in her uh, afterwards. She has like a note to the reader that points out like this is by no means, you know, a monolithic trans experience. Not all trans people are like this. Not all trans people experience transition the same way. Some people don't transition till later in life. People can't afford or are denied access to medical care that that Amanda has access to. So I don't think the problem is necessarily with her. But the way that this is often presented in both publishing, marketing, and by educators is, read this book about a trans girl. Now you know about trans teenagehood, which I think can be incredibly flattening and monolithic. My only other real concern with this book, and this does sort of have to do with the author, is that I don't like the bi character in this book. There is a bi character, and unfortunately, I think she falls into a lot of stereotypes about being bi, um, her bi-ness seems to be a bri- byproduct, excuse the pun, of her, her bi-ness seems to be the result of some trauma. And it's heavily linked to trauma in the book in a way that seems very stereotypical. I can't talk about it much more than that without spoiling parts of the book. Can we just have bi people who are happy, like that are just bi because they're bi and not because they were traumatized and who aren't you know, sleeping around with people just because they're bi. Like, that that's my only note on this. And I, I don't know if that was on purpose or not. That's just my only, the only part that made me feel a little squiggly. Squiggly, huh? So I, I'm reading a book right now uh, called Honey and Issues Guide to Fake Dating, which deals with that issue of bisexuality head on in a problematic way, but maybe with some more rom-com tendencies. We are seeing things by authors like Becky Abertali that she is starting to remove the issues of sexuality from a problematic aspect and just talking about them in a generally rom-com way. I do know that when my class read this book, it was probably the first interaction that most of them had with any trans issues. And so I feel like it was a very positive thing for them. I feel like they took good things away from it they certainly enjoyed it, and I was really worried that they wouldn't. You know, so, so issues aside, and we, we rarely have perfect pop culture, but issues aside, the book did the best thing that it can possibly do. So having said that, would you recommend it? Yeah, I actually really would. I mean, I think this book does what the author intended it to do, which is to provide an entry point to talking about trans issues specifically with cis readers 
This reads like it was written for cis readers, which is perfectly fine. I think that that's what this book is meant to do. I think it does it very well. The reason why I have mixed feelings about it more has to do with I wish there were more books that showed more diverse trans people, right? Like I wish that marketers didn't just pick up one book and say, see, we did it. We did the trans thing. And then not have diverse experiences within that world. So my, I guess my mixed feelings are more with the publishing than it is with the book in it itself. But yeah, I would recommend this, especially to anybody who, you know, wants to learn more um, about, you know, trans experiences and to engage with it through the lens of young adult lit. And from my end too, I just want to say thank you to Meredith Russo for publishing this book, which will, I think, enable, encourage, other authors to write, they have written, they are writing, they will write about trans issues, trans storylines, trans boys, trans girls, non-binary adolescents. And that will begin to have that normalizing effect within young adult literature. And I think that's going to have a very net positive result as the years go by, not too long into the future. So, you know, uh, Russo played a big part in that, and I think that's great. I just remembered something, too. This has nothing to do with what we were just talking about, but on Goodreads, when I was looking up some information about this book for my notes, there was a review that said, like, that objected to the title of this book by saying it should say, if I were your girl, like that it was grammatically incorrect to say if I was your girl. And I just want to say to that Goodreads reader, check your, check your verb noun agreement. And if you don't believe us, check with Prince. Andy, you did an anime again. Yes. What's this one about? That's correct. This is one called Gankutsuo, or maybe I should call it by its uh, full name that English people will uh, recognize and be able to find it and stream it. It's called Gankutsuo, The Count of Monte Cristo. And this Ah. is a space opera version of The Count of Monte Cristo. That's why you wanted to talk about it earlier. All right. All right. So wait, are you saying this is a space version of a ham and cheese sandwich? That is correct. That is correct. Uh, Wait, so does he tunnel out of a space prison? So that's one of the interesting things about this adaptation. As as soon as I started the first episode, uh, well, really about two seconds before I mentioned to my wife, I said, you know, what would be really cool if they did a version of the Count of Monte Cristo that is, that takes place from the point of view of the innocent people's lives that he ruins. Yeah. <laughs> and then this started and the, the main character is not the count. The main character is Albert or Albert, depending on if you're going with the French pronunciation or if you're a, uh, an English Neanderthal like me, and you just pronounce it as it's as it's spelt. So Albert is on the moon at the beginning, uh, doing a, a big uh, space festival. Like this feels very much almost like um, what what's what's the name of that Disney movie, the Disney animated movie where there's the the celebration, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, like you know a Mardi Gras style festival. Is happening. The Festival of Fools. Yeah, yeah. He's there. He's a young aristocrat. He meets a mysterious man who looks like a vampire and dresses like a vampire. And 
probably talks like a vampire too. Like I, I really can't imagine anything else. Uh, apparently this voice actor has voiced a lot of uh, anime vampires. Anime vampires. That would be a great album title. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he reveals he is the Count of Monte Cristo. And from there, it does a really good job at adapting the story beats of the Count of Monte Cristo. But again, Albert is the main point of view character. And what's interesting about this show is that it was originally supposed to be an adaptation of a book called The Star is My Destination, which is a it was also known as Tiger Tiger. It's a um sci-fi by Alfred Bester, who's a British sci-fi writer in the 50s. Anyway, they couldn't get the rights to it even though they already come up with some of the designs and they just decided, you know what? We're just going to make this about space revenge and just adapt the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay, okay. But wait. So what you're saying is this is a Japanese retelling of the Count of Monte Cristo from the innocent bystander's perspective. Are you sure it's not called Sheen Count of Monte Cristo? No, it could be called that, but... Alternate title. <laughs> so, so wait, it's a Japanese anime that's an ada- adaptation of a French novel with a setting inspired by British sci-fi. Yes, that, that is correct. The black pink of Japanese anime <laughs> is what I'm hearing. Yes, yes. It is the black pink of Japanese anime. Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo is in your area. This visually does not really look like an anime as you might think it looks. Uh, you know, when you imagine an anime, this is very... It's it's such a, a weird thing where all the clothes and stuff, the, the decadence of the Count and of the French nobility comes across in their clothing, which is just basically this incredibly detailed and ornate paper as they move around. It's just beautiful and glorious. And another interesting part of this though, is when the Count's not there, the, the shapes and textures are a little bit more subdued. So you really understand why Albert falls for the Count in such a way where he just becomes obsessed with this guy is so cool. And, and when he's in the room, the lighting, everything is just different and you believe him. And there's this feeling of just naivete from him. And, and it's, it's just amazing. And for those of you who don't know the, the kind of Monte Cristo is about a guy who gets imprisoned for the wrong reasons. And, uh, he, he's framed for something. He comes, he goes back under an, uh, an alias and, uh, slowly gets revenge, uh, among the people who wronged him. Um, and this is just wonderful. And this, the space setting is really bizarre and weird. Um, it, it's bizarre and weird in the ways where there's some aliens there, but also they don't have phones. Right. So so some of these problems that happen could be solved if someone had a phone to call someone else, but they don't. But they also have the Internet, but they don't have phones. I'm looking forward based on what you told me in about 20 years. I'm looking forward to the remake of the Shawshank Redemption in space in which there is a joke midway through the movie about 
Gangutsuo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, they are we sure that he's not a vampire? Because everything you've told me sounds like they are also adapting Dracula and Renfield. He, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not kidding when I say he looks like a vampire. But he has blue skin. He even has pointy teeth. If you Google image Gangutsuo, or you just type in Japanese Count of Monte Cristo, you will, you will see how how wonder how wonderful, just ornate the show the show's art is but also how yeah he's totally a vampire um and they they even like bring up like uh that that some people think he's a vampire alien from 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 space and and that and that's part of the thing right because it's set in space he's not a uh, a guy from a far off country he's a guy from the far off reaches of space he kind of actually looks like dracula from castlevania yeah like yeah, a little yeah. bit yeah e- exactly it's seriously like a, just a wonderful, wonderful show. It does such a good job at adapting the kind of Monte Cristo that there are some, uh, some yikes moments, of course. Um, but I think that's more of a thing with the uh, original source material. But uh, yeah, yeah, it it's really cool. Um, if you can find it, it, I know it was on Netflix for a while. It's not on there now. But the Count of Monte Cristo, it's a space opera. Count of Monte Cristo, and it's really cool. I, I love the Count of Monte Cristo, so I think I really need to watch Revenge. Revenge! <laughs> Wait, are you talking about the ABC TV show starring Emily Van Camp, or are you just going to be like a Batman figure in the night watching people take revenge on others? <laughs> How is that a Batman figure? That's, it's, that's like, just... it's like if Batman was a voyeur, I think. <laughs> it's like Batman, but he only watches. You yes, can't... On... Only watches revenge. <laughs> you can't prove that Batman isn't a voyeur. He just doesn't, you know, do sex crimes. That you know of. <laughs> womp, womp, womp. <laughs> uh... All right. So next week. Tessa watches her first Kevin Smith movie, Clerks. It's Kevin Smith's first Kevin Smith movie, too. Where can you find us, people? Tessa, you go first. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Dr. Sam, where can people find you? You can potentially... I mean, if you've seen the looks that Tessa's thrown me during this episode, I may not be around much longer, but... You may perhaps find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach nine. All right. You can find me on Twitter at Andy Noted. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can email us at monkeyuponbacklog at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts about what we talked about today. Anything you'd like us to talk about in the future episodes or anything else pop culture related. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes. It can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe. On iTunes, follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Get that monkey off your backlog.